When I was 19, I uh, moved up to Jackson Hole, Wyoming for the summer. And uh, I, I, my main reason was I, there was a church up there, this little camp like tucked right under the Tetons, and that was really cool, and had to pay the bills. So I got a landscaping job for the summer. And I was just coming from missions, from Youth with a Mission, like a discipleship training school with a bunch of wonderful people that love Jesus, and um, got thrown from that into like a roughneck landscaping crew. <laughs> um, words I hadn't heard in a while, phrases and co topics of conversations I wasn't used to. It was quite the education, to say the least. Um, but we did all kinds of different things, planted trees and sprayed shrubs and did all kinds of stuff. Um, one of the coolest experiences, though, they took us to this little uh, podunk town called Lander, Wyoming, in the middle of nowhere. And uh, people came from all over the state, and we did an arbory workshop. We learned how to trim trees and where to like safely make the cuts um, so that you know they grow back right and don't get bugs and and stuff like that and learned how to like with ropes how to safely climb trees and got this cool experience and then we went back to Jackson Hole and got to put that into practice i still remember like swinging around in these huge pine trees really high and uh, swinging around on ropes and as we're swinging around like i've got a chainsaw and you're cutting off branches right above like these multi-million dollar mansions in Jackson Hole dropping these branches. I was just glad that, uh, I was glad my mom couldn't see me because she would have freaked out. Um, but anyway, it was, a, it was a really cool experience. We pruned a lot of branches and hauled a lot of branches to the dump that year. And I think of all the things I learned that summer, including the fact that I didn't want to do landscaping for the rest of my life, tree trimming was actually the most useful. Now, when you're trimming trees, the point of tree trimming is to what? To cut out the dead, right? To cut out the dead. Or perhaps there's stuff growing, but it's not productive growth. It's not growth that's actually um, leading towards a, a mature, healthy tree or in the direction that you want to see the growth go. Or sometimes, you know, on a tree, when you trim a tree, there's those little like suckers that come up at the base and they're pretty and they have all these leaves and they're lush and green, um, but it's just stealing away the sap from where it really needs to go, which is up into the tree. And so you cut those off. And pruning, the whole idea behind pruning is so that the tree can be directed to grow in a healthy, in a purposeful, beautiful way. And if, you're, if you have an orchard and it's a fruit tree, obviously you prune it in such a way that it will produce the most fruit. Now, I think when it comes to our lives we have a desire to grow in a mature, healthy, purposeful way. But by default, when it comes to our lives, I think our method of thinking that we're going to get there is by always adding things to our lives. Adding more, whether that's more stuff that we think will bring, you know, more, more enjoyment, um, more things, more opportunities sometimes. Maybe it's more sports. Maybe it's, you know, like the sixth sport for your kid, and you're like, I will just add it, right? And I think something we, by default for us in America, that's just um, what we do. And I think we rarely pause and actually think through what needs to be pruned out of our life. We rarely pause and ask, is this the direction that we're heading in actually producing healthy growth 
purposeful growth in my life. We rarely pause and ask, is our life producing the kind of fruit that God desires in us? We rarely stop and ask and think about our root assumptions. What if our root assumptions about life are wrong? What if our whole approach as a culture is actually could be leading us in the wrong direction? What if there's something critical we're missing? I think many people, many people in our culture are missing something critical, and especially for followers of Jesus, it's important that we would hear his words. And so that's what we're going to see in John 15. And I think that it is a real wake-up call if we hear what it's really saying. And so if you have your Bibles, you can start turning it on over to John chapter 15. And if you have a paper Bible, um, I'm going to be in a little different version. If you have an app, you can just switch over. I'm going to be in the ESV version today, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. Um, but we're going to be reading through the ESV version. And just to, to catch you up in the book of John, we, we've just come through chapter 14, and Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, um, preparing them, giving them his final instructions. And uh, in chapter 14, he, he just begins by giving them, sort of setting everything in the context of their eternal hope, that he is going away, but he's going to come from them. He's going to spend and bring them to be with him. That's our eternal hope. Now, chapter 15 really gets to the question of why did he leave us here? Why are you here on the planet? Because if you notice, you don't get saved and like beamed up. Oftentimes we think that would be kind of nice, right? But he's left us here and he's left us here for a purpose. And so the very last verse of chapter 14, Jesus says something interesting. He tells his disciples as he's having this big discourse, he says, rise and let us go from here. And lots of scholars have like argued about this. And many scholars think that, that actually the next two chapters of the book of John is in route to the Garden of Gethsemane. So they leave the upper room and they're walking and they're on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would be arrested and betrayed by Judas. And on the way, it's highly likely, it's very likely that Jesus would have passed the Temple Mount ginormous temple mount under nearly a full moon because it's Passover season. And if you think of the temple in your head, um, you probably think of like ruins or maybe you've seen the Western Wall, like some off-white stones. But in this time of history, in the first century, when Jesus walked the planet, Herod's temple um, was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was spectacular. It was adorned with gold and all kinds of colors. Uh, Josephus, uh, an early Jewish historian, tells us that the entrance to the temple at the holy place, there were these giant steps that led to a linen, a, a linen curtain covered with purple and scarlet and blue flowers. It was spectacular. Lots of colors and gold. It says there were solid gold chains that hung alongside that curtain. And above the curtain and the giant door beam, there, there was a huge grapevine out of solid gold. And it represented Israel. In fact, some of the, uh, some of the clusters of grapes, Josephus tells us, were as tall as a man out of solid gold. Think about that. It was spectacular. And throughout the scriptures, the, the idea of the vine represents 
the people of Israel, the covenant people of God, planted and tended by him in order that the nation would produce great fruit. This is a picture you see prophetically all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, one of the, one of the messages of the prophets all throughout the Old Testament and before the people of Israel go into exile is God is coming to them through the prophets and saying, I planted you in the promised land and I, I tended you and I, I expected you to produce good grapes, but you're not. In fact, you're like a wild vine. You're producing bad grapes, bad fruit. And this was one of the prophetic messages of judgment against the nation before they went off into exile. And so all throughout the scriptures, you see this. And part of this then around the time of Jesus is there's this hope that, he, that the nation just hasn't been able to faithfully keep the promises of God. In fact, they swung so far the, the other direction because before the exile, they had... They had um, abandoned God. So during the time of Jesus, one of the biggest arguments he has is this religious legalism that they locked everything down so, so tight that they missed out on mercy and compassion because they were just checking off boxes. But there was this hope that Messiah would come because the prophet said that Messiah would come and he would, he would institute a new covenant that God would institute, that God himself would move in his people and institute a new covenant and he would change their hearts and put hearts inside them and the spirit inside them that would enable them to live the way he called them to live. The hope of the Messiah. And then on this night, in the upper room, Jesus has his final, his final Passover meal with his disciples. And what does he do? You remember we celebrate it every month when we celebrate communion. He says, this, this body, this, this cup is the cup, the new covenant. He says, it's here. I am initiating it. This is happening. He says, this Passover, the whole time, the meaning and the purpose of Passover, it was all pointing to me, to the ultimate sacrifice. And so as Jesus walks out of the upper room and passes by the temple mount, he may have paused at this point with his disciples and the moonlight glinted off these giant vines and grapes, clusters of grapes on the temple mount. And Jesus gives this profound, powerful teaching. Here's what he says in John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Now, if you grew up in church, you've, you've heard this, you know, a, a thousand times. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I remember this one. This is the vine and the branches one. I know this. I know where this is headed. This is one of um, the most familiar and, and dear passages of Scripture um, in all of the Scriptures that has just encouraged and challenged believers for now for a couple thousand years. But I think sometimes we miss the weight of what Jesus is doing here. He says, I am the true vine. This is the seventh ego ami or I am statement that he makes in the book of John. These are the statements where he intentionally says, I am, and then he follows it, and it's meant to draw your mind back, and anyone in the first century would immediately think of Exodus chapter 3, um, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and he says what? I am that I am. This is why they picked up stones to kill Jesus after he said these phrases. 
because they knew exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming to be God. And so, so he would say, throughout the book of John, we'd see, he said, I'm the bread of life, like the manna that was given to the people of Israel as they passed through the desert. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Your kings have failed you. You put your hope in kings. I told you, don't have a king. You chose a king. You put your hopes in kings. They led you into idolatry. And so at this time, the great messianic hope was God himself had to come and move. And that's what Jesus says is happening. I'm the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And then last chapter, we saw this powerful statement Jesus makes. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the route to relationship with God and connectedness to God. And now, in chapter 15, the final I am statement that Jesus makes, he says what? I am the true vine. And see, here's what you have to understand about that. Just like I said, the, the, the vine has been a symbol of God's covenant people all throughout Scripture. It's been a symbol, and so he takes this thing that everybody would understand. Israel is a vine planted that God tends, and he says, hey, guess what? I am the true vine. I am the true vine. That I am initiating a new covenant, and as part of this covenant, um, the way you're going to relate to God is through me, and both Jews and Gentiles are invited to find their true identity in me. That this is going to reroute history. Now, if you're a theologian, um, theology buff, um, I'm not saying replacement theology here. Don't hear me wrong on this, okay? But what I am saying here is that Jesus is redefining what it means to be part of the people of God in the sense of the true connectedness to God. And here's what he's saying. It flows through me. That if you want to have a relationship with me, it's great. You can trace your genealogy all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that's not the question. The question is, what do you do with Jesus? That if you want to have life, if you want to have salvation, it flows through Jesus. That, he, that you are actually grafted into the true vine. Paul talks about this in Romans 11, that we've been grafted in. If you're a Gentile, natural branches were removed so that you could be grafted in. This is the same concept we see Elijah as he's, as he's complaining to God and God says, don't worry, I know most of the nation has gone off and followed idols, but there's 7,000 still that remain faithful to me. And you see this concept of the faithful remnant all throughout the Old Testament, that there is, um, there's, there's the people of God, but there's the true people of God. There's the people of God in the flesh and the people of God in the spirit who follow him. And you've been grafted into that if you're a follower of Jesus. One of my commentaries puts it this way. The new concept is that God's vineyard holds one vine. And Israel must inquire from this point on if it's attached to him. That's the question. The question is, are you connected to Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? Are you part of the vine. So Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, there's three terms in here I want to talk about real quick. Um, 
One of them is that term takes away, the other is prunes, and the other is clean. When it says takes away in the Greek, you know, as, as translators translate the Bible, they take these Greek words, and sometimes the meaning is a little bit like the word doesn't capture the full meaning. I remember um, I had, I lived in Mexico, I had friends in Mexico, and they always used to call me uh, a fresa, and I didn't understand what that meant, because it meant a strawberry, and, a, and it didn't make sense in English, right? But apparently it was really funny, because they would laugh at me, and I'm like, all right, I don't know what you're saying. So sometimes words do that. In one language, they have a depth of meaning that they don't have in the other language. And when it says this takes away, this is actually one of the four meanings of this word in the Greek. And so takes away is, is, is a meaning of the word, but it's more than that. And so the translators, they pick this one, but there's some other meanings there that can really bring a depth to this. So one is that branches that, that aren't bearing fruit are taken away, but the other concept here from the vine dresser is this idea in Greek of being lifted up or supported. It, it's the idea of um, in John 11, Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven. In Luke 17, people lift up their voices. It's, it can be understood as raising up or pulling up. And so another meaning here. Is, is that Jesus is saying, my father is the vine dresser. And when there's a branch that needs support, he lifts it up and supports it. And one of the scholars I read, pastors thought, this is, this is a better understanding of this. And then the other word is prunes, kathairo. And what's interesting is you have one thing in your head, like I told the story starting out, about what pruning is. Some of you, you prune roses. My grandma we always joked around when grandma got out the pruning shears, watch out, because you would come and she would just hack stuff off. But amazingly, she had like a green thumb. It would come back. It was beautiful, right? But you'd see it after you pruned it, and you're like, whoa, that's terrifying. I don't want to get around grandma when she's got pruning shears. But see, understand there's more of a depth of meaning to this word in Greek. This is the same exact word that Jesus uses a couple chapters ago when, when he washes the feet. He says you have to be cleansed. So pruning also talks about cleansing in the Greek. That you, you're, there, so there's a purifying, there's a cleansing here. And so there's this idea also, and you would understand this if you were you know, a farmer that worked in this kind of a, a culture, that when sometimes the branch would get weighted down and it would get down in the mud, and lovingly the vine dresser will pull it up, support it, wash it off cleansing, purifying it. In fact, I think this is a great understanding of this because you go on and it says, what? Already you are clean. You are purified. It's the same root word. Already you are. By what? By the word. And so when you put these ideas together, um, scripture talks about being washed by the water of the word, that there's an ongoing cleansing that happens when you allow the word of God to wash over you. Hebrews talks about the word of God being alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And the idea here is you don't just read scripture, it reads you. And this is, there's a big theological word, I think, that, that encapsulates this, and that is the word sanctification. That you are saved by grace, and there's an ongoing process where the grace of God and the Holy Spirit works in your life to make you more like Jesus, to bring growth, to bring transformation. And part of that is a pruning, a removal of things. And part of that is a cleansing. And part of that is strengthening and supporting you and lifting you up. 
It's the work of Jesus in your life. And the big idea here is God wants us to bear fruit. And in order to do that, sometimes some things need to be taken away. Some things need to be cleansed. Some things need to be supported. He goes on. He says this in verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. And, and some of your translations, the NIV, which we normally preach out of, says remain. And I wanted to use ESV because I feel like abide is a lot better sort of larger word. Remain means one thing in your head. Abide, you're like, what does that mean? Because it means more than just remaining, than staying. It does mean that. So it means stay in the faith, stay trusting in Jesus. But it goes on deeper. There's an idea of dwelling, like dwelling in him, like making your home in him. being connected to him. This is the heart of what he's saying, abide. And you're going to see this over and over throughout this passage. In fact, it's 10 times in the first nine verses he's going to say, abide. See, this is an illustration of what Jesus says in chapter 14 that we saw a couple weeks ago, where, where he says, if anyone loves me, he, he's going to keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him. We will make our home with him. This is about something that's deeper, um, that's going on inside. It's about the, an, an interior life of intimacy with God. And so now Jesus brings in a new example and an illustration of what that means. And he says, okay, here, it's like a vine and it's like a branch. And you need to stay connected. Abide in me, he says. Abide, remain, live, wait, dwell, accept. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, the goal is fruit. The goal is fruit in your life. That's the goal of the pruning. That's the goal of the cleansing, to produce the good, healthy, mature growth and fruit in your life. And when you think about fruit, um, I remember we had this amazing fruit tree in our yard growing up. Uh, we weren't in Palisade. We were like north of the highway, but it was this huge tree. And we moved when I was like four, but this tree made such an impression on me. I can still feel the juice like rolling down my chin. We had these massive peaches. It was great. Millions of peaches. Anyway, I'm not going to. You guys are asleep this morning. Me too. I'm waking up, though. I have my, my more, some more coffee, so I'm good. It's kicking in. But the idea is fruit. And I think when we think of fruit, a lot of these things, because Jesus says some of these things, and, and it feels nebulous. And so for so many people, their definition of fruit is just, well, I guess I'm, I'm becoming a nice person. And we define fruit as just being a nice person. Or we really define fruit in whatever way we want to. Like, you put a target, you know, a bullseye on the wall, or you throw a dart at the wall, and then you draw a bullseye around it and go, I think I'm going to do it pretty good. 
Here's the idea of fruit. As you read through the whole New Testament in Romans, you see that fruit includes influencing and winning people for Jesus. It includes this idea of being liberated from sin and moving towards serving God and sanctification, a big word Paul uses, the transformational process that's going on in my life. It includes, in Romans, um, generosity. The, there's a, the people in Jerusalem were, were suffering from a famine, and Paul says, I'm bringing the fruit of their that openly profess the name of Jesus. That say, that confess Jesus, that say we believe in Jesus, we belong to Jesus. That we give him our praise, our thanksgiving. And in, in Galatians 5, we get a long list of fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And what does that look like? This is more our character and the outpouring of our life. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Jesus talks over and over about love in this chapter. We're going to see that as we go through. And I think the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then you have attributes of how that works itself out in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Descriptors of fruit. In fact, it's contrasted to some of what's called the the works of the flesh, which is our natural tendency, apart from the Spirit of God moving in our lives, and that is what? In Galatians 5 also, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, Paul says. The opposite of fruit in our life. So it's this big idea of being filled with love, generosity, a mouthful of praise and thanksgiving, a life lived for Jesus and influencing others for Jesus, experiencing a peace and a patience and a joy. That's fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? Do you want more of that in your life? I want more of that in my life. how do, you, how do you get there? How do, you, how do you produce that fruit? I want to illustrate this right now, actually, with a little video. That was written and produced by yours truly, starring John Cox, cinematography by Winston Sully, Um, all done yesterday at 3 p.m.
And here we have our illustration. Now, what do you notice about this branch? It's kind of pretty. I mean, it's definitely fall colors, right? Um, it's got this pretty little fruit. I don't know, crab apple or something, right? It's got berries on it. Now, here's what I think we should do with this fruit branch. I think it's planted in a bucket full of rocks. I think we should just set it over here on this side of the stage and leave it. And next spring, I'm expecting we come back and there's gorgeous buds all over this, flowers. And then by next fall, even more fruit than this. How many of you want to bet that's going to happen? No. Why? It's not connected to the root. There's no life flowing. It's not connected to the tree or in Jesus' illustration to the vine, correct? What is going to happen with this? It's going to dry out. It's going to shrivel up. The rest of the leaves will fall off. <clears throat> and that is what it is, right? There's not life there. There's not a, a connectedness there. You see, what Jesus says in this scripture is, um, apart from him, we can do quite a bit. Not quite a bit. No, wait, wait. Um, apart from me, you can do oh, a reasonable amount. What does it say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And see, here's what most of us do when it comes to this idea. We hear a message like this, or we read a passage like this, and our first thought is, I'm expected to produce fruit. I'm going to get out there and start a whole bunch of activity. Let's see. I'm going to read through the whole Bible in three months, and I'm going to, I'm going to go join the soup kitchen and help out there, and uh, I'm going to kick up my giving a little bit and all of that in order to check the boxes off, thinking that more and more activity in our life is the key to producing fruit. Now, all of those things are good things, godly things even but it's not the key to producing fruit and a life of maturity, is it? What is the key? Abide in me. Abide in me and I in you. That there's a connectedness that needs to remain. And man, our default is just to kick into more and more activity and try harder and do better, isn't it? Because I think you see a list like this and you're like, I either guilt or you feel pride, like, oh, I think I'm doing pretty good. Or you feel guilt, oh man. And so we kick into that, do more, do more, try harder, try harder. You know what I've never seen on a fruit tree? You never go out in the spring and look at those little buds and, and just see them like straining and trying right? But the other thing you don't see either is you don't go out in, in March and see the little bud and come back a week later and pop, there's this amazing giant peach. It's a process. It's growth. There's sanctification, so to speak, involved, right? There's growth. And what needs to happen for that to happen? Connectedness. 
You stay connected to the vine. You stay connected to the root and let the life of the root flow through you. Throughout the scriptures, this is referred to as walking in step with the Holy Spirit, walking with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being washed by the water of his word, all these different concepts. That the word of God dwells richly in you. That it's not just a checklist. It's not, hey, I'm going to run out and check it off the box at 15 minutes in the morning and, and a few prayers. That's a wonderful thing. But it can become just a checklist item for you. It's, a, it's an attitude of coming before Jesus and saying, Jesus, speak to me through your word. I want to hear your voice. Empower me today to live the way you've called me to live. I want to stay connected to you. It's an all-day-long thing. It's meditating on his words all day long. Remembering. It's an attitude of prayerfulness. Paul says, pray continually. I think this is what's involved when he talks about abiding. It's staying with him, but it's that heart attitude that in the midst of my chaos, in the midst of my busyness, in the midst of the disappointment of the day or the week, Jesus I love you. I'm staying out. Empower me. I want to stay connected to you. I want to experience your life. Let me just tell you, I want to experience that more and more. Don't you? I want to stay closer. Sometimes you got to get away. You got to pull away. There's solitude has been one of the biggest um, things in the life of the church as you read through um, church fathers and stuff of, of getting away with Jesus. Like taking a block of a couple hours and just go spending time with Jesus and asking for him to speak to you. When prayer isn't just a, a checklist item, but it's an attitude of your heart. And then it's a process in understanding. Days, months, years, you begin to see fruit develop in your life. Jesus goes on and he says this, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So there's something about the fruit of our life that ends up showing the world that we belong to Jesus, right? There's something about the fruit of our life that overflows in the way we love others and the way we honor God that shows people we, we belong to Jesus. We're his followers. And see, Jesus contrasts this, and there's a, a sobering thing in this, isn't there? There's a sobering thing in this because he says, if anyone does not abide in me, and literally as he's speaking to his disciples, there's going to, he says, I'm the true vine, right? And there's going to be a whole section of Jewish leaders and a bunch of people right there that, that crucify Jesus and reject him and persecute his followers and literally reject him. And Jesus prophesies the destruction of that whole system. And 40 years later, just less than 40 years later, it happens and the city is burnt in a giant fire and multitudes are literally destroyed. But 
then there's also a sense in this where he's saying, a life not abiding in me, you can do nothing, right? Nothing of, of value, nothing of worth, nothing of eternal significance. Nothing that lasts beyond the here and now. Nothing that exists into eternity, brings eternal reward. No, a life separated from me is, is, is like a grapevine. And they would understand this because once you cut off grape, a grapevine, it's not really good for anything. You can't turn it into lumber. Basically, it's good for being burned up. And that's a life lived apart from him. And so there's a sobering thing in this to say, if you look at your life and there, as a pattern of your life, there's not fruit. Paul says a good question to ask. He says, search yourself, ask, am I really in the faith? Is this real for me? Or has this just been a religious checklist thing? You know, I grew up Christian, went to church, served in my community, but there's not a real connectedness and relationship to Jesus there. So there is a sobering thing to ask yourself, if there's no fruit, do I really belong to Jesus? And then there's also a thing where when, when, when for a season you're not seeing fruit that you, you desire to ask, am I really walking with the Holy Spirit? Am I really staying in step with him? Or have I drifted off in my own direction? Have I, have I kind of quit? is you know the heart of God and your prayers are powerful and effective because you're asking for the right things. You're asking for things that are on the heart of God. And see, the next verse is where this all flows from. And if you miss this, you miss the whole heart of what Jesus is saying here and the motivation and what this needs to flow from. Here's what Jesus said in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Now, just pause, because if you grew up in the church, your tendency is just to read through this stuff and not actually pause and think about it. Think about it. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. See, here's the problem. I don't think you believe that. Oh, I think you're, you know, you believe it in your mind. I don't think it's sunk into your heart. I don't think it's fully sunk into my heart. As the Father, the Creator, as the Father, the God of the universe, loves the Son, the Word, the, the second person of the Trinity who existed forever, who created everything, the perfect unity. Perfect love, perfect harmony as you read this. The one who he says, oh, you're my son and you, I am well pleased. Jesus says, I love you like that. That's the love your God has for you. See, if you don't understand his love for you, remember Jesus is going to say this, in fact, in just a minute, he's going to say the greater love has no one than this, that they lay down his life for his, their friends, which is exactly what Jesus is getting ready to do. If your faith is not rooted in the love of God for you specifically and individually, 
you're going to always be trying out of your own effort to please him. And it'll just be this repeat cycle where you're like, oh, man, I don't see. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do more. And then you're either going to do good and you're going to feel prideful about it. (laughs) Or you're going to blow it and you're going to feel shame and do rinse and repeat. Try again. Try harder this time. See, the grace and the love of God is he loved you first. He came for you first. While we were still sinners, he died for us. And unless you can comprehend that love, and trust me, this passage of Scripture is one that followers of Jesus have understood, like, I need to get this on a, on a different, on a spiritual level. This isn't something you can just get with your mind and like, oh, yeah, I got it. <laughs> There's something deeper here. This whole concept of abiding, we're like, God, show me what this means. I want to experience that. I don't get it in my mind, but I need to know it. I want to know it. I'm going to read through the rest of these, the next five verses, um, or I can't count, a few more, quickly. Because I want to see, I want you to see, there's these circling themes, and this all comes back to each other. I'm going to invite Winston up, and we're going to close here in just a minute. But, Here's what he says. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. So love is the root of it. Understanding is love. Then what? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So a heart of gratitude, we live out of response for that and understanding his love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. What does it do to your heart to realize the creator of the universe cares about your joy? Wow. What a God. He goes on, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends You are my friends if you do what I command you. That there's an intimacy that comes from a life of submission and obedience to him from understanding his great love for us and his grace for us. That he wants to call you a friend. A friend of God. Not powerful. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you, I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go out and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. See, when you are rooted and grounded in the love of God, this beautiful circle begins to happen. That you understand the love and grace he has for you. And you live out out of an overflow of that, and it creates joy in your life. And it motivates you to live in a way that's others-focused and centered, where you actually give up some of your rights and selfish desires in order to serve him more. And that creates friendship and intimacy with him. And the whole thing circles around. And there's fruit 
that abides and that lasts. Do you want that? I do. I want that more in my life than I see right now. Would you stand? See, this isn't something that can just be like understood and analyzed. This is something that's understood through the Spirit of God moving on your heart. And so as we close in prayer, I just want to invite you to respond to him and go, God, I want that. I want that. I don't feel like I, I feel like a lot of times I'm just spinning up activity to try to, to please you, to try to feel better about myself. I want to know this connectedness to a whole new level. And so if you're here and you've not yet placed your faith and trust in Jesus, your first step is to, to, to accept what he's done for you, to embrace the free gift of salvation in life. And as I close, um, in your own words, you can just express to him, ask him for forgiveness and express your trust in him that he died for you and that he rose again and that he's your Lord and you want to live your life for him. I hope you'll do that. And for others in the room, it's just saying, God, I need your joy. I've lost sight of the love you have for me, and so I've been trying to do this thing on my own, and I'm not bearing the fruit. I want more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness to be flowing from me. Holy Spirit, let me get back aligned. Help me understand your love for me, your grace. On a deeper level, beyond anything I, I can comprehend with my mind, Lord. Let it sink into my heart. Let me know it. Let me know it. For some, maybe there's something that you know. He's just, he's saying, I want to I prune this thing away. There's things in your life that maybe need some pruning in order for you to produce fruit in order for you to produce healthy, mature growth. And maybe today your response as we pray is just to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to let go of this thing. I'm going to allow you to take this thing out of my life. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you. We worship you. And Lord, help us. because Lord, we confess our, our frail Finite minds cannot fully understand the, the weight of what you're trying to communicate to us in the scripture, Lord. But we cry out, we want to abide. We want to know the depth of your love for us, and we want to live from that. Let your grace just fill this place today. We love you, and we pray these things in your name, the name of Jesus. And everybody said... Amen.